Welcome to this podcast series designed to help aspiring teachers take those fearful first steps with courage and determination. My name's Andrea, I've been working in the Tefl industry for many years in various roles including Head of Studies, Director of Studies, Teacher Trainer and as a freelance teacher. If you've ever felt nervous about starting out as a new teacher, you're not the only one. So many people are taking those fearful first steps after gaining their certificate, but you don't have anything to worry about. Here you're going to receive tips, tricks and useful tactics that will set you up for success in your job in the TEFL industry. During this podcast, I'm talking to Hugh Della, who is the co-author of the General English course book series, Outcomes and Innovations. He's also the co-founder of an online school and training company called Lexical Lab and has written his own book called Teaching Lexically. Today, he joins us to tell us how teachers can best use course books in the classroom to aid students' learning. He'll also tell us about his own experiences in teaching with a few very funny stories along the way. But before I kick off this awesome interview with Hugh, I'd like to take this opportunity to say a big thanks to everyone who's taken the time to tune in to this first series of 10 podcasts that I've published this year. I'm very happy to say that there's been a lot of interest in the podcast and I've received some really great feedback enough to get me contemplating about what's going to come next. Together with giving advice here, I finally launched my ebook on Amazon, which can be found on Kindle Worldwide, which is called Your Journey to Success, The TEFL Teacher's Guidebook. In the book, I talk about how to draw on typical business skills and behaviors that will not only help you improve your confidence and chances of finding work, but will set you up as a whole to be truly successful as a TEFL teacher. Look at it as big picture stuff, i.e. techniques that will help you grow professionally and personally. And don't worry if you don't have a Kindle, you can still buy the ebook on Amazon and download it to any one of your devices to read it. Now, let's move on to the interview. Hello, Hugh. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I feel like I've got somebody famous on my podcast. <laughs> Very small pond, medium-sized fish. It really does feel like I've got somebody great on here that's going to offer some, some really interesting stuff, I'm sure. I'm no doubt at all. So, so I'd like to start by asking you to tell us a bit about your journey in teaching English. So how did it start? Where did it start? Where is it taking you? And what are you doing these days? So, um, probably like quite a few native speakers, I kind of became an English teacher by accident. Um, I certainly never set out to be a teacher, and most of my experience of secondary school was marked by hating most teachers with a vengeance, mostly because they seemed to hate me. I had an English teacher that I really loved, and she was basically responsible for getting me into sixth form and then subsequently pushing me to go to uni. I was the first kid from my family to go to university and I did English literature at Goldsmiths. And I then basically found myself sort of unemployed and relatively unemployable with no idea of what I wanted to do. 
Uh, I had some kind of vague thought that maybe I could write. And so I applied for loads of journalism jobs and nothing came of that. And I was doing like I was playing in a band and I was quite serious about kind of music at that point. And I was doing all kinds of crappy jobs. I was working on building sites and doing factory work and laboring work and working in a secondhand record shop two days a week and just scraping a living basically. And I had this idea that I needed to kind of just get away. Well, my band split up and I split up with the girl I was living with at the time. And it kind of felt like everything was ending and I needed to just kind of get away and escape. And I'd had a couple of mates who'd been off traveling and I kind of had this romantic idea that it might be nice to just go around the world and see something different. An old mate of mine suddenly reappeared in London and I knew him from being in bands. And we got talking, we went out for a drink in Soho and he asked me what I was up to. And I said, I was saving up money to go around the world. And he said, why don't you teach? And I was like, well, because I hate teachers. And he said, that, that's a really good reason for becoming a teacher. Look at it as a kind of form of, of revenge on the bad teachers you've had. And anyway, I've been teaching. And this seemed so unlikely that my friend had been teaching. So where? And he said, Iran and Ethiopia. And he had all these photos of him, like in the desert in Iran. And this just seemed so outlandish and, and otherworldly that someone I knew might have been able to do this. And so I signed up on a CTEFLA course at Westminster College in 1993 and did my one month course. And um, in Cambridge's infinite wisdom was allowed to call myself an English teacher. I then worked in private language schools in London for a while, went off and spent a couple of years working in Indonesia. Um, I came back to London, did my Delta, then enrolled on an MAT soul, got a job at University of Westminster while I was doing my MAT soul and also got a book deal. So my first book came out the year I finished my MA, which was 2000. I then had kind of 14 years of a very pleasant existence where I was working four days a week at University of Westminster, um, teaching EFL, EAP, academic literacy. And at the same time, I was also writing. So I was working with Andrew Walkley, my co-author, and we were kind of writing course books three days a week and teaching four days a week um, and, and kind of fairly prolific on the writing front. So we did the innovation series, we did the outcome series. And then in 2014, the university made everyone except the two non-union members redundant. And at that moment, we basically both decided that we didn't want to work for any other institutions after the way we'd been treated there. And so we set up on our own, we started Lexical Lab. Um, we were still writing quite a lot, we spent a year trying to run a bricks and mortar private language school in the centre of London, which was a, a fun and entertaining way of losing 50 grand. Um, so we, we knocked that on the head fairly swiftly. What we learned from that was that we could do a summer school. So in 2017, we did our first summer school, six week summer school for predominantly non-native speaker English language teachers. That grew 2018, 2019. Then we were supposed to be fully booked for 2020, but obviously COVID had other ideas for us. So at the start of this year, we basically realised that our three income streams, which were course book writing, summer school and overseas training, had all basically 
vanished. And so we, we panicked a little bit and thought, what are we going to do? So in about March this year, we set up a small kind of online school, basically. And so most of this year, we've been running Lexical Lab online language lessons. And I think that's what we're looking to continue with at the moment. It's wow, there. that was such a brilliant whirlwind tour of your life. You. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, Madness. In all of these years of experience and travels and everything that's been going on, is there a funny or embarrassing story that you could tell us? Something that's happened to you you'll be prepared to share on this podcast? Oh, God, loads, yeah. Loads and loads. Probably the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to me in a language classroom happened in about 2004 or five. Um, I was working at University of Westminster and we used to get these groups come over from... Hiroshima Shudo University, and they were first-year English undergraduates. And they were lovely kids, but they were very shy, and it was usually their first time outside of Japan, and they'd been used to learning in very Japanese-style classrooms. And I think when there's a kind of collective group of Japanese students, even if they're transported to the UK, it often takes them a while to kind of relax into the mode of, of learning that you're offering them. I just treated them as I would treat any other class. And I was, you know, my usual probably kind of slightly in your face kind of persona, which, um, you know, may have been slightly intimidating for them. Plus, I'm, I'm nearly two metres tall and stuff and quite loud. And on about day three of the class, when they were still very much warming up, I'd been cycling. I used to cycle in and out of work. And I was in class and I was writing something on the board and uh, I scratched my bum as one does. And as I scratched, I suddenly thought, that doesn't feel like a trouser, that feels like skin. So I kind of tried to turn around and see what was going on. And I realised that somehow while I was cycling, I'd managed to basically rip the arse out of my trousers. And there was this huge <laughs> rip, leaving a large exposed area of um, unpleasant flesh um, visible to the sight of the students. So I sort of turned around and all the students at this point just had their head down like this. Like just, just No one was even looking at each other or anything. So I sort of thought I need to extricate myself from this situation. So um, I sort of went... One minute, I've just realised um, I need to um, go and do something. So I get out of the class and I'm thinking, what the hell, what does one do in this situation? I've got no other change of trousers. I don't have time to go and buy anything. So I went upstairs to the staff room and found a copy of the Metro newspaper and sellotaped it round my leg inside my trousers so that the offending skin was removed from sight. And I had a kind of, you know, newspaper stocking of some kind. And I came back down and by this point, the ridiculousness of the whole thing was was sort of very, you know, obvious to me. And I said to the class, like, why didn't you tell me? And they all just kind of put their head down like this. And again, really, really, really embarrassed. Luckily, I taught them for a month. And um, by the end of the month, it had become a kind of running joke with the class. I can and, um, one of them basically said, we thought this was London fashion. Bless. <laughs> uh. Yeah, it's how, how teachers roll at universities here <laughs> in the UK. We just let it all hang out. <laughs> that is a hilarious story. I love it. Thank you for sharing it. You're welcome. Not one of my <laughs> finest moments. Do you still have the Metro newspaper? <laughs> uh, not, not that particular edition of the Metro newspaper, no. 
That would have been we, funny. We could, could raffle it. it off to one of your listeners. <laughs> exactly. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So on to some maybe more serious stuff now. What we are going to talk about today, if that's okay, is talk a little bit more about the outcome series and about sure. Mexico Lab and what you're doing there. And and this podcast is really aimed at new teachers um, mm-hmm. who we can give advice to, tips to helping them find their feet in the first year or so. But also we've got a nice um, audience of, of experienced teachers listening in. So anything that okay. you can share on that front will be great. Um, so so you mentioned about the outcomes books, Hugh, yeah. that uh, you co-write with Andrew. Yeah. Would you just tell us a little bit about those books? And then afterwards, could you give some tips and advice to our new teachers about how they can use books, course books in general, or even the outcomes books, to make their classes more interesting, help help their students progress and help them as well uh, teach their classes. Okay. So in a sense, outcomes came out of our experience of writing innovations. And with the innovation series, what we were really interested in was focusing much more on everyday spoken language, because we felt that that was a huge gap in what appeared in most course books. Most course books didn't have a lot of natural everyday spoken language in them. And so we wrote five levels of innovations and we were then initially commissioned to do a second edition. But as it got going, there was sort of a lot of discussion with the publishers about what they wanted. And in the end, we sort of thought, okay, look, it makes more sense just to to make a clean break and do something slightly different. So what we wanted to do with Outcomes really was a slightly more commercial book than Innovations. We wanted to do something which featured the grammar that we knew the market expected. Um, But we also wanted to do something which had a strong focus on spoken language and that had a kind of lexically oriented way of presenting the language And so what we were interested in doing is kind of building on what we've done with innovations, writing a course book that covered everyday social English, but also academic English and professional English and trying to sort of mix those three areas. We were also interested in thinking about the common European framework, thinking about Okay, so at B1, students are supposed to be able to talk about their feelings. What what does that mean? You know, and I think in a way, as a writer, as a teacher, it's one of the interesting things about the CEFR is B1 can talk about their feelings. Okay, that's great. What is that conversation? You know, it can't just be, I'm bored, I'm angry. What, you know, what is the actual conversation within which you, 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 you have those conversations and you exchange this information? So we were really interested in trying to take the CEFR seriously and trying to actually focus each opening double page on helping students have a particular kind of conversation, including grammar, including vocabulary, But those weren't the things that drove the material. What drove the material was thinking about the outcome, thinking about what is it you want students to be better able to talk about or write about or listen to or read about at the end of this one hour, two hour lesson. Um, In terms of your other question, 
how can you get the most out of course books? I mean, obviously, as a course book writer, I would say think long and hard about the books you're using and what they help you do. I think course books are useful. And I think understanding, I mean, you know, no one wants to be making their own material every lesson because it's a lot of work. And a lot of the time you're basically reinventing wheels which already exist out there when maybe you could be using your time better to think about. So I guess the way I think about it now is when I was a very young teacher, very inexperienced teacher, I was basically trained to think about my lessons in terms of strings of activities. So if you'd asked me, what is it you're doing today? The way I would have understood your question is to say, well, I'm going to do a game and then I'm going to do a song and then I'm going to do a presentation of the past perfect continuous. Then I'm going to do a photocopied page of Murphy's to practice it. And then some wacky game with some chopped up stuff and then another game and then something else. Now, the way I think about it is, well, what language are you going to be teaching today? Okay. Um, how are you going to explain that language? Have you thought about what examples you might give connected to that? Have you thought about what questions students might ask you about that language? What speaking are you doing? What do you think students might try to say in response to that speaking? Have you thought about what language you might teach and how you might teach it in response to what comes up during the speaking? What is it you want students to be better able to do? Fine, you're doing that vocab exercise. What are you going to tell students about that vocab apart from the answers? Which bits of vocab are worth spending more time on? What are you going to do with those bits of vocab? What questions are you going to ask students about those bits of vocab? Um, are there better questions you could ask? Are there better examples you could give? So I think it's, it's much more to do with thinking about the language that you're teaching, what you're going to get students to do with that language, what examples you're going to give and what questions you're going to ask, and that driving your planning rather than what activities are you going to do today. And as a teacher, you have a responsibility to think about which bits of English are most useful for them at their level to help them achieve the outcomes that you've decided are desirable for them to achieve, or to help them achieve the outcomes that the book you're using has decided are desirable for them to try and achieve. And then it's just thinking about making space for the students and involving the students more in what you're doing with the language and the speaking and the listenings and the grammar and all of that stuff as you're going through the lessons. We do have an online course, by the way, um, about learning to plan better on the oh. Lexical Lab website. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Yes. Yeah, so well, the next question we'll be answering in a moment, we're asking all about the Lexical Lab. Just going back to the, the books and use of the yeah. books, how can... Um, how can new teachers use the content to make their classes more interesting? If you, how would you suggest that they use sort of interact between the book and the, the classroom? I think the real way in which that happens is through the explanations, examples and questions that come up. OK. And again, I think I didn't know how to do this for the first, God knows, six, seven years of my teaching career, because no, no one ever sort of talked me through how this might work. I had to kind of find it blind in a way. I think what it means is looking at whatever sentence comes up in whatever material you're teaching and thinking what might be new there, 
how can I explain it to students in a way that's meaningful to my students in their context? Okay. Um, can I give an extra example that's better than the example in the book because it's pitched at my students at their level in their context? And can I ask them an extra question? So just to give one example, I was doing an upper intermediate class last year and um, the verb pass out came up. It was in a listening and I just, I think I asked any other language you're not sure of. And someone said, what does pass out mean? And it was something like, you know, it was so hot on the train, I nearly passed out. So, you know, you explain it. If you pass out, you kind of go, whoo, and fall to the floor for two minutes and you're unconscious, okay? Um, usually because it's very hot or any other reasons why maybe you might pass out. Someone else said, you know, you're very, very tired and you've been on your feet all day. It's like, oh, spoken like a true teacher. You know, I was so exhausted, I nearly passed out on the bus home. Any other reasons? We then had these two mad stories. One of the Korean girls in the class said, Justin Bieber. And it was like, any other reasons why you pass out Justin Bieber? And, and so I, I need a bit more context here. And she told this whole story about how she'd been to see, uh, she, when she was younger, she was a huge um, Justin Bieber fan. And I learned that these people are called believers. So she was a teenage believer. And um, first time, uh, Justin Bieber came to Seoul. She got tickets. She got there early. She was right at the front. And then as he was kind of getting ready to come on stage, there was a surge to the front and she got crushed and she passed out and they had to carry her over the crowd, take her to the medical room. And by the time she came round, he'd finished his set. So she never got to see him. But one of the Japanese girls suddenly said, I also have a story. And um, this was like a really quiet kind of prim and proper sort of Japanese girl in my class and she said when she graduated from high school she went out drinking with her friends and she got so drunk she passed out on the train coming home last train home she lived at the end of the line and her dad was waiting to pick her up and her dad was running up and down the train looking for her panicking because she couldn't find her he found her passed out tried to wake her up but she wouldn't wake up uh, and um he then picked her up and threw her over his shoulder and kind of walked off with her. In the middle of all this happening, she sort of sobered up enough to wake up and realised she was being carried somewhere. She thought she was being abducted by someone and she started hitting her dad. And a guy from the train company came up and basically said, put the young girl down, sir. And the dad sort of went, it's my daughter. And the guy from the train company apparently said, they all say that, mate, and punched him. And he sort of dropped her on the floor and ended up with this black eye. Wow. And the next morning she had to come down for breakfast. And as she came down, um, she sort of thought something bad happened last night and I can't remember what it was. And her dad was sitting there in the kitchen with a black eye kind of going, we need to talk, young lady. And those kind of moments are really magical little moments where, you know, I wasn't asking, has anyone ever got so drunk they <laughs> no. passed out? Because you wouldn't get that story in response to that. All I was doing was teaching the word pass out, explaining it, saying any other reasons why maybe people might pass out. And I think learning to ask those kinds of questions, which yeah. bring the students' worlds and experiences into play in the classroom, is really where the magic of teaching lies. And I wish I'd known how to do that earlier. And, you know, they're quite simple questions. They're just like, 
any other reasons why maybe you pass out. Great. And it's also a great relationship builder between the teacher and student, isn't it? Because you, you now you've got a fun exactly. story and, and you're having you know, a good laugh about and it. And you know that the students then come to class the next day thinking, Whoa, what stories today? Exactly. You know, that's exactly. where the real motivation, I think, of, of social learning occurs. Well, I think that's great. And uh, it was really nice advice for new teachers to compliment the book and then just add something themselves. Yeah. Because I do think that the new teachers are, you know, as we all were um, when we first started out, slightly scared about not doing something from the book, almost yeah. using it religiously and yeah, having yeah. to feel the need to, to finish it. Yeah. Very good. Okay. So tell us a bit more about Lexical Lab then. You've mentioned a couple of things already, but what does it aim to achieve? And what can it offer, say, new teachers? And yeah. Now, what can it offer experienced teachers? So uh, when we first became self-employed and we realised we probably needed a website, we had this idea of trying to set up a space online where people who were interested in kind of lexically oriented pedagogy could, you know, meet and read things that might help them get their heads around what the lexical approach was a bit more. And partly this was inspired by the fact that when we started out, our first editors were Michael Lewis and Jimmy Hill, who wrote The Lexical Approach. And sadly, I mean, there's no video footage at all of Michael talking. I remember going to see him in the 90s and sort of, you know, being blown away by him at IATFL. And he never recorded anything. You know, he kind of he quit the profession just as the Internet was taking off. And so I think partly we were thinking, well, we, we need a space where we can blog. We need a space where we can share articles. And it kind of grew from that, really. So we started out just writing about teaching and kind of sharing our ideas about teaching, which I'd been doing before on a separate platform. Um, and so I kind of, you know, brought all that into one place. We got some guest people in to write we then started doing these kind of words of the day, little mini lessons or chunks of the day, kind of exploring phrases. And we then got requests from teachers saying, you know, can you add questions to them and make them downloadable? Yeah, we can do that. Um, I then started doing these little one minute English videos, which we got added to the site. We then sort of thought, oh, we'd better mention the fact that we do different talks and we'd better kind of link to our YouTube channel. And so over the years, it's kind of grown organically. And basically what you can find there is a hell of a lot of blogging on teaching and learning and kind of lexically oriented ways of thinking about things and, you know, Sometimes just about other issues within the field as well. So the most popular blog post that's gone up this year was one about the curse of native speakerism uh, and the, the kind of ongoing discrimination that exists within the profession towards non-natives. So there's that. There's a whole load of stuff for students, particularly language learning students, about uh, words of the day, chunks of the day. And then on top of that, we offer online language lessons. We offer online teacher development courses, which can be done as standalones or with either Andrew or myself as tutors. We do regular monthly webinars on a whole range of subjects. And we also run a six week face to face London summer school, COVID willing. Um, and all of that's up there on the site, www.lexicallab.com. 
Fantastic. So is that the best way for people to find out more? Is there an email address? Yeah. So can they follow you on Facebook or Instagram? They can, or do, they can do many things. The okay. website's probably the best place to start and have a nose around. If anyone wants to contact us directly, you can just do info, I-N-F-O, at lexicallab.com. We are on Facebook as Lexical Lab Limited. We're also on Instagram as Lexical Lab and use that quite a lot as well. Very good. And okay. we have our own YouTube channel. Very nice. And what other piece of general advice could you give to our new teachers listening in about how best to settle into teaching English in their first year or so? Mm. I think when I first started, I, I never really got to know my students properly. I think I regarded my students as deficient producers of an idealized language which I was trying to bring them up to the level of and so I knew a lot about whether or not they could make grammatically correct third conditionals or whether they could say three trees or ship and sheep um, and I think worrying about all of that stopped me interacting with them as people and I really wish I had spent a bit more time just getting to know my students as human beings. I think it's just recognising you can't teach everything at once. Don't try to. Um, you can't teach everything they need to know about individual words at once. When you're teaching grammar, think about how you actually use it. Um, don't waste time teaching ridiculous sentences that no one's ever going to say. Um, when you're teaching vocabulary, again, think about the grammar that goes with the vocab. Think about what you might say using the vocabulary. If you can't think of anything you might say using the vocabulary, it's probably not worth teaching. And, you know, just find a bit more space in the classroom to listen to your students and talk to them and help them try to say what they want to say better even if that means teaching things that are supposedly above their level. Relax, be yourself, be in the moment and enjoy. Hugh, it's been fun and interesting and lightning and uh, really great to have you. Thank you. And have a great Thank day. Thank you, yeah. Lovely to be in touch. Take care.